This edition of 100 Not Out proudly brought to you by the 2019 Greek Island Longevity Experience in Ikaria. Join Damien Christoph and myself for 10 days on the island where people forget to die. Live with the locals, drink the wine, eat the food and discover the longevity lifestyle with a select group of like-minded people just like you who will become friends for life. Activities include stunning hikes, cooking classes, essential oil workshops, festivals and dancing, grape stomping and wine harvesting, village hopping, beach days on the Aegean Sea, farming and foraging with the locals and so much more. For dates, details, highlights of previous events and to apply, go to 100notout.com. Group size limited to 16 and applications processed on a first-in, first-served basis. TheWellnessCouch.com streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to 100 Not Out, featuring your hosts, Dr. Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce. Welcome to 100 Not Out, a weekly show dedicated to helping you master the art of aging. Well, Marcus Pierce here with you. Hope you are going absolutely beautifully. I am without my co-host for the second week in a row, Dr. Damien Christoph, only because this is part two of our interview with Dr. Sanduk Ruit, the god of sight. Damien was unavailable for this interview. And last week, if you haven't caught the episode, I highly recommend you go back to last week's episode so you can listen to part one of this interview with Dr. Sanduk Ruit. He is the Fred Hollows of Nepal. I say that to our Australian listeners which about three quarters of you are. But Dr. Sandit Ruit is one of the world's leading ophthalmologists. He is an eye surgeon that has done over 120,000 uh, sight-restoring surgeries um, in his native Nepal, but also in many other countries and many of them developing countries throughout the world. Um, this was a one-hour interview, which was really too, uh, not even long enough to go through... Uh, 1% of Dr. Sandit Ruwitt's life, so I highly recommend you do as I did, uh, and that is read the book, The Barefoot Surgeon by Ali Gripper, because um, I really wanted to, I could have spent 24 hours interviewing Dr. Ruwitt, but uh, there's only so much that we could fit into this interview. We've spoken in, in part one a lot about his upbringing one of the most challenging upbringings I would have, uh, I don't think I could have dealt with it, that's for sure. Uh, particularly, we spoke about how the fact that he um, lost three of his siblings, three siblings, uh, by the time that he was 19, which is just, again, harrowing to say the least. Um, and they were just only some of the challenges that Dr. Ruit experienced growing up. Um, we we resume this interview uh, with Dr. Ruit, having now met uh, Dr. Fred Hollows, um, who, again, many Australians, um, you know, my age and older, would be aware of um, and I think more than anything I'd love for you to get out of this interview just the commitment that Dr. Ruwit has to his life purpose he's he's uh, seen the challenges of his life and turned them into um, opportunities um, to live the life that he lives today but also some of the uh, conversation we have around finances knowing that financial stress is one of the biggest stresses in the western world just how he's been able to deal with living in a developing country when he really could have uh, lived in australia um, as he did for a year when he lived with the hollows family he could be earning a million bucks a year as one of the great eye surgeons of the world in australia but uh, that connection between his life purpose and his um Financials. His life purpose went out. You know, he wanted to live in Nepal, help his uh, country, men, women, and children, and help improve.
improve their quality of life. Um, the discussions around family, um, around physical health, mental health, and just some real spiritual moments here. One where we talk about when he had um, a personal appointment with the Dalai Lama. Again, I think he's the first person we've ever had on 100 Night Out to have a personal appointment with the Dalai Lama. Uh, some of his beliefs around spirituality and the rest. So really hope you enjoy part two of this interview with the barefoot surgeon, the god of sight, Dr. Sanduk Ruit. There's a great story, and I'd love for you to pick it up where you're out, uh, essentially, you know, at the foot of Everest, and you're working at one of the outreach camps, and in walks yes. uh, a dwarf with cataracts in both eyes. Um, yes. Now, can you pick it up there? Because my understanding is in in Nepalese culture, a dwarf, based on the caste system, is is a uh, untouchable and and then untreatable. Yeah. Really, um, can you pick it up mm-hmm. from there? Because it's a fascinating and, and really uplifting story. Yeah, we uh, we found uh, you know during our examinations uh, uh, in one of these places at the you know, towards more towards the foothills of uh, Everest, uh, we found uh, this uh, this young and uh, little uh, stunted dwarfed um, uh, person from uh, lower caste. Uh, he, he was he was probably from uh, the you know we called uh, uh, somebody who would do uh, you know. Uh, uh, rough iron work, you know, yep. like a like a smiths, you know, you know, and they they are considered as uh, the untouchables uh, in uh, you know, I mean, in, uh, it's not so bad now, but those days uh, the caste system was very uh, you know sort of very prominent, and uh, we found and uh, it was difficult for us to uh, you know sort of uh, really. Um, uh, uh, Talk to him, and uh, uh, and then uh, not only talk to him, but uh, to uh, make sure that uh, he gets to a hospital for treatment, and uh, you know look after him. And people wouldn't like to do that, you know. Those this was this was the kind of thing 40 years back, you know. Mm. But now things are again different, and uh, so uh, uh, Fred, uh, uh, you know, said. Uh, we must make sure that this uh, this man uh, gets the best treatment, you know. And uh, we we did uh, we did uh, try to do a few things, which uh, finally uh, allowed him to have treatment uh, at the hospital. Yeah. Well, my understanding is you gave him sixty rupees of your own money, yes. and to, for yes. the bus fare to Kathmandu. And and yes. according to the book, the quote from Hollows is, "Let's stuff it up the noses of those bloody Brahmins in the eye hospital." <laughs> <laughs> As in, who are the highest cast, and let's freak them out, and uh, and then we'll we'll get that get that young man's eyes um, fixed up. But I think you know it just goes to show, and this seems to be the I suppose the beginning of your in Australia we'd call this a bromance, Doctor Ruit, where you really did become yeah. soulmates, and you realised that you know obviously yeah. Fred Hollows is is well known for his saying about you know every eye is an eye, uh, whether you're working on um, the king or, or or anyone that you you treat that yeah. eye. With the the same level of, of respect, and I, I know you're very similar um, in that. But it's a, it's a very uplifting story, and and it just goes to show the humanitarian uh, humanitarian um, efforts of both of you. So let's fast forward this wonderful story. But you end up moving uh, out to Australia for twelve months and live with the Hollows family, and and uh, working alongside Fred or observing um, his work whilst your wife Nanda is is with uh, Gabby Hollows and and the children. But you end up. Uh, feeling the pull to return home now really again in the west we could say well you you would have had a safe and secure job in australia not only that but it would have been high paying and you're going back to you decide to go back to nepal 
where you know you're about to go back to earning eight dollars fifty a week, thirty dollars a month. It's hardly mm-hmm. even a dollar a day. But you really had a vision by this point, didn't you? Can you outline just what your vision was? You clearly had developed a real spiritual muscle to to help people in your country. Uh, for people that are learning about you for the first time, can you outline what that was? Yeah, Marcus, you know, uh, so what was fascinating about uh, Fred was, uh, you know, when, when I met him in Nepal for the first time was uh, his concern uh, to bring equity uh, in the world. And he thought, uh, you know, we should we should really uh, endorse and uh, and uh, make sure we help the, uh, you know, so-called marginalized community. And uh, there's a great bulk of marginalized community in the developing world. We must make sure that we look after them and champion their cause. And that, that was what fascinated me. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, well, even if you look well, at the cataract stats, I mean, that's probably a massive kind of yeah. pointer, isn't it? What are why, the stats? Why, something like 90% yeah. of cataracts yes. are in the developing world. And um, yes. what, what, what I can say uh, now is uh, Fred was basically a trachoma man. Mm. And Fred had come to look at trachoma in Nepal because of all the expertise he had by doing the work in the outback among the Aborigines, you know. Then I can take a little bit of credit uh, in telling that I got him interested very severely in cataracts. When he saw it more in Nepal, naturally. more in Nepal, that cataract was something that we could do something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, positively and, uh, you know, and uh, we started talking a lot about cataract after that. And uh, and when we, uh, you know, when I and uh, my wife, uh, you know, Fred and Gavi invited us to uh, live in Farnham's house and work at the Prince of Wales Hospital, uh, there were moments in the evening that Fred and I used to sit uh, at the uh, back of uh, the Farnham's house. And uh, those days, Marcus, you know, the surgery for cataract, uh, and now I'm talking about uh, 1987. Mm. And those days, surgeries for cataract, uh, you know, people uh, in, uh, in, you know, industrialized world and in best city, best centers in the industrialized world, they were using intraocular lens implantation. And they were doing sutures and they were taking a long time for the surgery. It was not as established surgery as it is now. And those that type of surgery was not done in developing country. Mm. In developing country, all the developing country, people are using, taking the cataract out and giving them thick cock bottle glasses. So we were sitting on the back of the Farnham's house trying to think in vacuum. We had no answer how to do this, uh, you know, how we could uh, achieve this uh, uh, at the community in a public health way uh, to this to this mass of uh, people who really need uh, who are blinded with cataract who really need uh, to be restored you know uh, their sight needs to be restored properly uh, with a good quality intervention and uh, we had no idea you know. And you were held down, weren't you, when you returned home? Yes, you yes. Know, you were, you were, were held down. You're were. telling people to improve the procedures and the establishment is saying, no, we can do yeah. 50 of these, you know, Coke bottle procedures for the price of 
one intraocular lens and then Fred Hollows yes. comes along at one of your conferences and tells everyone to get stuffed and, and innovate and stop stop treating a, a, a lower class eye differently to yeah. a Western, you know, Westerner's yeah. eye and, and move up with yeah. the times. Um, yeah. And that was kind of the beginning of you started to get some funding, didn't you? I mean, I'm looking at the numbers. You you left Australia. I think they they got together about $2,000 for you to – to start your Nepal Eye Program Australia, which sounds like such a yes. small amount of money. Um, yes. Normally, and- normally, Marcos, you know, normally somebody uh, who has gone uh, to, you know, to work or live in, uh, you know, Western world, for somebody to come back to a developing world, people would assume in their in their developing world that uh, this man will come with a lot of money and a lot of other other things good for him, you know, and he has earned quite a bit of money coming back from Australia, you know. Yes, yes, and your family would have been expecting some some dividends of that. We had, we we probably, (laughs) we probably didn't have what we took, uh, you know, uh, when we were um, in Australia. So when we came back, we probably came back very empty handed. Mm. And your family uh, weren't there to greet you at the airport. They wouldn't accept you into your no, into the family no. homes because you'd married no, no. a uh, your wife Nanda was from a higher caste, so they yeah. wouldn't let you at their place, and your folks wouldn't let you at, at their place. So I think you, you what you stayed with a friend when you returned home, did you not? Yeah, but there was uh, there was a there was a determination of uh, you know uh, sort of a not really do or die, but uh, you know um, it, it was a scenario. But I also had on the back of my mind, I had uh, some vague answers to the questions. And uh, I started uh, quickly working on those, uh, you know, on those uh, thoughts about um, how we could do that and uh, how should we move forwards. So we started quickly uh, moving out. And, uh, uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, after about four years, we started uh, achieving things uh, at the bu- in, the, in, the, in the bush and uh, doing intraocular lens implantation. And, uh, and those days, uh, so I, you know, there were no emails, and uh, I used, I used to once in a while, I used to talk to Fred, and uh, so I talked to Fred, and I said, uh, Fred, I've started using intraocular lens implantation successfully in uh, in eye cams. Uh, Fred would say, Shit, I must come and look, you know. No, and really, what he said was, Jesus effing Christ, what about the effing infection yeah. <laughs> rate, Sandok? What's going on, mate? Yeah, and, and yeah. you were there to tell him that it was no worse. It was actually um, there was no problems because you were very well sterilized yeah. and and you had quite yeah. a, a very good system down pat the, the the results were very good and uh, you know so this really invited uh, a very uh, um, high level international cataract meeting in nepal and this was the meeting that took place in a five star hotel in nepal and uh, you know fred and i was uh, one of the uh, delegates uh, with um, major decision holder uh, managers, ophthalmologists from this part of the world and from America, from Australia, from England, you know, and international organizations. And there were presentations made from the subcontinent, thousand cases of uh, no intraocular lens with very good results with uh, glasses, and uh, another 2,000 cases of very good results without uh, intraocular lenses again, yeah. But anyway, WHO and every all this, you know, this is all, you know, uh, uh, this is all great result. So we we present 150 cases of intraocular lens implantation done in the uh, bush, and uh, this was singled. We were singled out, and everybody started saying that this is too early to do it. 
you need to have a clinical trial to do it. Mm. <laughs> and it's too complicated, too expensive. And that's where Fred got up and uh, Fred said, you, you know, you, uh, you bastards. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and all the words that he said to yes. all the big big countries and uh, said, you know, I mean, uh, here is what, you know. And uh, one thing that uh, Fred and I said clearly to the WHO people was those days, you know, when the surgery package uh, consisted of thick cock bottle glasses, then we predicted that that cock bottle glasses will be replaced by intraocular lenses. And looking back, uh, uh, you know, this is uh, really uh, – you, you cannot imagine that was how they you know they were treating cases you know that we were treating cases particularly given yeah, the so, landscape i think that was the point i really gleaned is that if you're in nepal yeah. and you're living in the mountains and you've got uh, coke yeah. bottle lenses with really limited sight um then yeah. you fall over and then you, your, your glasses smash and then you can't do anything um yeah. it's you not like anything, living yeah. in in the suburbs of, of a of a western mm. world where everything's quite flat and and paved mm. so can you give us an insight? Um, you know, you, you start off doing the camps. From my understanding, you know, you're pretty much the only the the only ophthalmologist that is willing to go out to these remote locations. A lot of the others are happy for a secure job in a hospital and do their old school methods and the rest. What kind of buzz? I mean, anyone that started a new project, but particularly yours, where the project has such a big vision, can you give us an idea of the buzz that you that you got? And I know that you still get today from bringing sight to people that really would have had no belief at all that their sight would have been restored what is that feeling like oh it's it's uh, uh you know uh i i tell you i'm very privileged and very lucky to have uh, come across and uh, got a first uh, hand uh, uh you know war from uh, patients who have been you can imagine you close your eyes now that's how they come first time uh, to see us, almost totally blind. You know, they can just make light and darkness, and uh, and just just imagine uh, that uh, this is a 26 year old girl, and uh, who has been walking down the mountain uh, for about 10 days uh, with her husband, and then there is a young child who is three years old. And the child uh, was born when the girl was still blind, and the girl had never seen the child. And uh, you know, you look at the look at the patient, the patients, uh, the the uh, the finger toes are bleeding because patients been walking on the rocks and stones, and uh, you know, for so many days. And then suddenly, uh, uh, you do the surgery, put an intraocular lens implant, and uh, do a very good quality surgery. And then uh, the the first hand experience of seeing how uh, this lady uh, sees the child for the first time, grasps the child and put her in her lap and starting to caress. And uh, you could virtually see drops of tears falling from her eyes uh, and falling into the uh, into the child, you know. And uh, th these are, I tell you, these are heavenly, uh, really out of this world experience. And I've got thousands of uh, stories to tell you. Oh, that's the thing. I mean, just listening to the stories and reading the stories, and I think of the numbers. What's the what? What is the current number? How many people have you personally restored sight to, as of today? <laughs> it's a, I, I'm sure it's a little more than hundred thousand, Marcus. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And then I can imagine why I, I have no. Um, 
and no surprise that people do prostrate before you and they do ask for locks of your hair and they, yeah. they clamour to touch you. And again, the locals call you the god of sight. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and you can totally appreciate um, why that is. I know in your own humility you say, look, there's nothing mystical about the procedure. The real miracle yeah. was, was giving them the same advantages as, as anyone else in the world, people like you and I. But yeah. I think you would be the first person I've interviewed, Dr. Ruit, who has been uh, seconded to have a, a personal meeting with the Dalai Lama. Um, mm-hmm. Now, at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the time that you were invited to be with His Holiness, you, you had your private practice, which you were working in at night. It was dead quiet. In your own words, you were catching flies, just waiting and hoping that patients would turn up. But work that you yeah. had been doing at the outreach camps had reached uh, His Holiness. What What is it like to be in the direct presence and proximity of someone like the Dalai Lama for for 30 minutes? What does that do for someone like yourself? Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, I mean, uh, I, I definitely think that he has uh, uh, a very affectionate uh, feeling and uh, like uh, we often call, and he likes to call it as a compassion. Uh, and But I would say that uh, he's uh, a very uh, affectionate and he will uh, endorse on the good work that you're doing. And uh, he brings in, when you sit, uh, there's an aura, you know, there is an aura there's a feeling that uh, something nice is happening inside you, <laughs> and uh, when when you touch his hand and he when he grasps your hand, and uh, I thought uh, you know I often say that my hands are softest in the world, but uh, then his hands are so softer, <laughs> and uh, so my God, I tell you, so soft, and uh, then and then uh, you know once I talk to him a little bit about the surgical procedure, he giggles once in a while, and it's a lovely giggle, you know, a giggle that you uh, you know spotless, uh, no interest, and, uh, you know, uh, unintentional, very fresh, like for childhood giggles, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, I'm and a real unconditional love of... Um, yeah, yeah you, unconditional you, giggles, you know? Yeah. And he giggles on it, and that makes you feel... And, uh, you know, what I felt was, uh, as I got out of the room, I felt I was totally recharged, and that's the kind of feeling uh, that you get, really. Yeah. But Marcus, you know, one thing, uh, you know, I mean, we talk about the number of surgeries that I've done and, uh, you know, but I think the most important thing that we have uh, achieved so far is uh, to uh, systematize the whole cataract surgical delivery and make it appropriate, sustainable team building in terms of equipments and make it happen at a public health community uh, and then reduplicate this in many other countries. Absolutely. And so, the, yes. so that's, I think, the most gratifying through trainees, through our own work. And now this is being practiced as our system, as the Nepalese system in many parts of Africa, Asia and South America. This is what is, I think, has been one of the greatest public health uh, you know, contributions, really. And I think this is your own legacy phase of your life, isn't it? I mean, um, yes. I know uh, surgically you're, you're, you're in practice two days a week and the others you're, you're doing your management and expanding that legacy to get this the training out to the rest of the world. I, I'm curious because I really think it's important that we, we talk about uh, when your Talganga Institute of Ophthalmology opened in, in 1994. So we're coming up 25 years ago now. Um, yeah. But that's really kind of where I suppose the legacy really was 
was born, wasn't it? Because you had the Lens Factory, um, which which is a wonderful story. Um, the Fred Hollows in, uh, Intraocular Lens Laboratory, which you know, my understanding is that that Fred Hollow said um, to Ray Avery, who who helped put the the laboratory together. Um, where's the quote that I'm looking for? Is uh, Hollows was by a sick bed. He pulled over Ray Avery and he said, Ray, start doing something effing useful with your life and stop making money out of sick people because you've been building factories for pharmaceutical companies in, in other countries. But you're able to, through through this vision and this legacy, bring the cost of a lens down from about $100 to I think it's around $3 um, yes. to be the first factory in Nepal to be quality assured with international yeah. standards. You've, you've made over yes. 5 million lenses distributed mm-hmm. to over 70 mm-hmm. countries. But as you say, the, the legacy part of the of the point of your career you're now at really must be the, the training of surgeons to share with them. I mean, just to give listeners an yes. idea, you do this surgery in about five minutes, which is just yeah. fascinating. And I know many people in Australia, since I've been telling them about your story, you know, they're used to paying five-figure amounts uh, for 45 minutes um, of work. And you're doing this in five minutes and now teaching ophthalmologists from all around the world how to do the same in their countries, particularly the developing countries? You know, uh, I, I was recently, uh, what's really what's really powerful, Marcus, is uh, that uh, we, we have now fine-tuned and uh, established the systems. And uh, I was recently on a, on a camp in up in the hills and uh, uh, and a faculty from uh, the uh, Moran's Eye Center, Uni- University of Utah, uh, was uh, with me a very senior person and uh, we we're looking at the uh, results of the surgery uh, and uh, you know so this is a quote that he gave you after looking at each patient uh, you know the results are better than in the best institutions of the world it's fascinating isn't it that's 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 how you know we have uh, uh, come to this and and you know you know Marcus like you're talking about now and uh, it's it's part of my uh, now my uh, time goes and seeing how best we can uh, in, enlarge our duplicate our efforts and uh, you know make sure that other communities in the world you know especially in other parts of Asia and other parts of Africa and uh, we have just you know just just by coincidence just yesterday. I was, we had invited a very close friend of ours who had been a CFO uh, in uh, in Google's and, uh, you know, uh, and Patrick Pritchett and my partner, Dr. Jeff Devine. And we have been discussing about uh, enlarging the, uh, the capacity of the intraocular lens production and then trying to establish small community eye hospitals in Indonesia, in Myanmar, in Ethiopia, in Ghana. So this is this is all exciting, really exciting, Marcus. And this is what I'd love to know because I am a bit of a statistics man. So I, I, my statistics might be incorrect, but if there's 18 million people around the world uh, with cataracts and and it's largely preventable, is it yes. is it possible um, that you know what what kind of timeline do you think we're looking at to have a lot of this? preventable blindness eradicated i mean well one i'd love to know where it sits with nepal where was it 30 years ago where is it today and then what can we expect on a global level considering as you said your vision continues to expand by the day uh in in nepal we have been able to we have achieved in you know in making the prevalence of blindness uh uh you know it was 0.8 percent when we started 
in early 90s. And now it has come to 0.4. Wow. So it is hard. And uh, we want to share this experience with other parts of the world. And uh, we, we call it, uh, like you have rightfully called it, we call it fight against avoidable blindness. Yeah. A blindness which could either be prevented or cured or treated, you know. Well, that's the astonishing and, uh, and the exciting thing all at the same time, isn't it? It's astonishing yeah. that so many people have blindness that can be avoided yeah. and prevented, but uh, yeah. exciting that you yeah, have one, such a one way of the, to do one it. Of the things, uh, one of the things, Marcus, uh, that, you know, uh, the, the intraocular lens is one part of, uh, you know, uh, helping with uh, reducing cost and making it affordable. And the other thing that uh, we have uh, uh, trying to uh, share, uh, and this is part of what... Uh, uh, the exercise went with this team uh, of Patrick Pritchard and Jeff Tevin uh, is to uh, demonstrate uh, a small uh, concept of what we call as a community eye hospital. And this is a this is a setup where two surgeons and about twenty staffs, support staffs, stick together, uh, work together uh, to um, uh, you know to do about five thousand surgeries a year. And uh, this is achievable, and uh, the ownership driven to the local people, uh, and uh, uh, it it continues to have a sustainable effect. And after five or six years, it'll meet its own operating cost and starts to make money. That's the beauty of this. Absolutely, so it's extremely sustainable. And we have uh, uh, one of the first models. Uh, we have one in Nepal already. But outside Nepal, we have the first model coming up in Bhutan, which is almost 80% constructed now. And uh, this has been fund, uh, you know, funded by, uh, interestingly, by a, uh, by a, uh, by a very uh, generous foundation based in, uh, in Perth uh, called When Giving Foundation. Uh -huh. These are a couple, uh, uh, Chuchi and Mei Wen, and... Uh, and we we would like to uh, show this as a as a model, and uh, you know it's been done, and uh, you know and done in a very uh, systematic and uh, business plan way, you know, so so that it could be uh, duplicated in other places. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you, I, I know you you do need to go shortly. I just got a couple more questions. Just talk yes. about the impact that not only the blindness has in in the villages and but also then once you remove that blindness what positive impact it has because i mean i was even looking at vietnam it was a thousand surgeries done a year it's now up to two hundred thousand and, and more a year what what yeah. impact does it does the blindness have but then what impact does removing it have on society yeah i think uh, you know in most of the developing countries where uh, there's a um, uh, sort of a uh, life uh, more in a joint family and uh uh, subsistence family, you know, and uh, what happens is uh, if uh, one person in the family gets knocked off because you are blind, uh, it sort of uh, ties other members of the family uh, 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 socially and economically. And uh, somebody uh, who gets sight restored uh, now becomes uh, uh, free economically and socially and becomes part of the bread honor. And uh, uh, that's that's definitely something that has been proven, and also uh, blindness is supposed to uh, restoring sight as supposed to 
very well established by reports uh, that the um, uh, lifespan, uh, you know, gets shortened if you're blind. If you're blind, your your lifespan is shorter. Yeah, and I read so even you, with children, their life expectancy yeah. is only around five yes. years. You increase you increase the life, uh, and you increase definitely the quality of life. So there are so many things uh, that uh, blindness uh, can affect. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, I would say it, it's it does much more severely. Uh, in areas uh, of uh, developing world where uh, one family member becomes blind and the whole family dynamics is, uh, you know, sort of buggered, yeah. Now, um, again, very grateful for your time. Just got a couple more questions for you. I'd love to ask you a personal one because I've got one that I really uh, related to uh, in the book. I used to be very fond of a cigarette, Dr. Ruit, and it was when I met my, my now wife, Sarah, who's a health professional herself and very health conscious that it was not going to be good for our relationship and our family to be if I continued smoking. I think you have a similar story and we have a very health conscious uh, listening audience. Can you share share that story but maybe also add the, the alcohol story as well because two very interesting stories related to you and your lovely wife. Great. <laughs> oh, from my heart. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll share with you. Uh, I had been, uh, you know, uh, I had been a great drinker and I love my drinking. And uh, I think, you know, it's also, you know, you have a bloody stupid excuse saying that you work very hard and at the end of the day, you're so tired that you need something to relax you. Mm. And that's all bullshit, I think, you know. Mm. Yep. <laughs> no. Yeah. And, uh, you know, smoking, I really used to enjoy smoking for a long time. And uh, first was uh, uh, I tried, um, you know, stopping smoking for few intervals and uh, I've never succeeded. And then what happened was uh, when my second child was uh, uh, my, my wife uh, was uh, about seven, eight months pregnant with my second child. And uh, we, we had a very, uh, you know, sort of ordinary uh, flat and that we were sharing with our children and that was all I could afford to uh, and uh, we were sort of in the in the bedroom I was just uh, lying down and my wife was on my side and I was trying to lit up a cigarette and uh, smoke and uh, then my wife uh, gave a very nice soft uh, dialogue saying uh, it's okay you know I can uh, manage to uh, smoke a little bit but uh, do you want to also, you know, let your child who is under me, who is inside me, also smoke? And uh, this really hit me very hard. And I, got up, uh, I got up uh, immediately and uh, I threw the uh, cigarette and I decided uh, that, uh, you know, uh, this is it. And, uh, I, you know, if I want to leave, I, I should, uh, you know, this is the most important thing I should do. And without stopping it abruptly, you can never stop it. Mm. So uh, my, my suggestion to uh, uh, you know, everybody is uh, you cannot have that phase-wise stop. That doesn't work. You have to have find a good cause, either religious or a family or whatever, you know, and then just stop it. Yeah. Stop it and stops. And then, uh, you know, you, you feel... Uh, maybe six months, but after six months, you feel great. And I believe a Fantastic. similar thing happened with you with alcohol. You you mixed drinks one night after <laughs> a big day that you'd done seventy surgeries, and and you'd normally just yeah. uh, have a scotch or a whiskey. But 
some beer was thrown your way and maybe <laughs> some gin and a few other drinks and it went a bit too far? Yeah, my, you know, my, I had a long day at the surgery and, uh, you know, I got, and it was a party at my chairman's uh, house. Uh, Surit Gimire's house and uh, you know we were uh, sort of uh, you know, I, I got in a few whiskeys and then one of my friends started putting in some other uh, things I don't know what and then later on I just forgot about what I was drinking and uh, I never knew how I got out of that house and how I got into my house and uh, my wife uh, was again uh, very generous and saying uh, you, have, uh, you know sometimes you have to look into yourself how you you know how you're doing so i probably did everything that you do uh, after a lot of alcohol and uh, got uh, in the morning got up and with a severe headache and uh, uh, and my wife uh, said very nicely i think uh, we should probably say enough now you know so that was the day when uh, i stopped and uh, you know now it's almost eight years and uh, um, i'm feeling good i'm feeling great without uh, it and um, my surgical efficiency and my everything is very good marcus yeah, it's, and I think family is great accountability for health improvements, but also professionally, it's it's nice to know that we have you in great health to be able to continue to <laughs> to live your vision and expand your influence. Just my final question: I'd love it um, if yes. you would be happy to share just one of your favorite yes. stories, perhaps a recent one that that's not in the book yes. that you may have experienced in the last six months or so that has yes. really touched your heart. That that would also touch the heart of our listeners. You're talking about something that I say, yeah. I just received uh, a small sculpture of a horse, a beautiful marble sculpture uh, from uh, uh, from a trainee uh, in North Korea. And a young doctor who had uh, been trained here with me, uh, and a very simple young doctor from, uh, from North Korea, and... Uh, you know, he sent it uh, a small sculpture of a horse through his ambassador, and uh, then uh, he had written a little one-page note in his own uh, uh, his own uh, language, and uh, I got it translated. And it said that uh, teacher, uh, I've started performing the surgery, and I performed the surgery on a very famous sculpture of uh, of North Korea. And the sculpture, uh, the uh, artist gave me this statue, and I'm sending this statue to you. I did his surgery, and I'm sending the statue to you. So oh, yeah. this was from a trainee whom I have trained, and he's sending something that his patient gave it to him, one of an artist, uh, you know, a very senior artist. And it's so touching, Marcus, you know. Oh, that is absolutely beautiful. Well, I might I might leave you with a story of my own, uh, Dr. Ruwit, really? because after reading your book, I showed my children some videos of your work and I told them that it only cost $25 to restore the sight of someone maybe even their age. And my kids receive yes. pocket money each week and they have three jars that they put their money in. There's wow. a jar for spending, a jar for saving, and a jar for giving. And after sharing Wonderful. your work with them, they are excited to make their first ever, their, their eight... Uh, eight six and and two but my, my eight and six year old they're very excited that their first ever charitable donation will be to your program uh to help radically shift someone's life and so um i encourage all of our listeners to support your work for us in the west a mere 25 dollars is absolutely nothing and what an impact that money would have on not just one blind person but as you said earlier their family their friends 
and their wider communities. And so, Dr. Ruid, I would love to just thank you on behalf of our listeners and the wider yes. population at large. Just thank you so much for, for taking the road less traveled, for going through the pain and the hardship and the challenge in your life in order to create <laughs> the changes you, you've, you've made on this planet. And we sincerely yes. thank yes, you Marcus. for yeah. it. And yeah. as we like to yes, say... Marcus, on, Marcus make sure... Yes. Make sure, uh, make sure that uh, you know uh, our, we we could uh, you know get a lot of people to uh, get on with the barefoot surgeon book. And I think once it goes uh, around in the world, and I could use this as a uh, as for campaign against avoidable blindness, and this will give me a platform to uh, raise more funds elsewhere in the world. Absolutely, I think the the barefoot yeah. surgeon by Ali Gripper is the best place for people to start. There are so many questions that I I haven't asked you, Doctor Ruit, that are that are really in the in the book, particularly around your family life and and the travels and the and the the dangers that you experienced in traveling yeah. to so many of these camps. But there's the book. There's yeah. also the Fred Hollows Foundation, which is at uh, hollows.org. Um, there's the Tilgunga Institute of Ophthalmology, which you founded, which is at tilgunga.org, and also um, acureblindness.org. Org, which is the the Himalayan Cataract Project, and I think it's just important for people to recognise that the 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 very fact that you've brought the cost of what you do down so dramatically makes it very easy for people like myself and and other people living in in Western society to contribute to your vision because you've made it so affordable for people to contribute in such a meaningful way and. As I said, uh, sincere thanks for what you do. And as we like to tell all of our guests on the podcast, we wish you, Dr. Sandit Ruit, may the rest of your life truly be the best of your life. Thank you very much, Marcus. Well, there you have it, folks. Hopefully that is one of the best interviews that you have, three, two, and one. Well, there you have it, 100 Not Out listeners. Really hope you've enjoyed this two-part series with Dr. Sandit Ruit. Please let myself and Damo know. You can email me direct, marcus at thewellnesscouch.com. I'd love to know what impact this interview has had on you. For Damo, go to damienchristoff.com, myself, marcuspierce.com.au. But as Dr. Ruit said, help his message get out there to the world even more. There are a number of ways you can do it. Uh, buy a copy of the book, The Barefoot Zer- Surgeon by Ali Gripper. Uh, support the Fred Hollows Foundation. Only $25 can restore sight to uh, someone with preventable blindness with cataracts um, so have a look at hollows.org you can donate through the website there I know I've uh, got our family donating my children are excited uh, to donate as I said to Dr. Ruit there they've got their give jar ready uh, to raise their first $25 to give to uh, someone that is blind in Nepal but again, it is uh, millions of people around the world that have preventable blindness. You can have a look at uh, Dr. Ruit's uh, Institute of Ophthalmology. That is at tilganga.org. That's T-I-L-G-A-N-G-A.org. Now, these links are all in the show notes. Um, the Himalayan Cataract Project, that's at cureblindness.org. Um, and again, more than anything, just get educated about one of these challenges that we have in the world today, and that is preventable blindness. Fred Hollows brought that to our attention as Australians with uh, the National Trachoma Program back in 1975. Now, again, there's still a lot of work to be done in our own country and even more work to be done right throughout the world. And so with our ability to make an effort on this at such an affordable level, and for me, it's just so exciting that we can make such improvement on this in such a short space of time, which when you look at a lot of challenges around the world, they're challenges that many of 
us think are going to take three or four hundred years to improve. Well, this one could be cured in our lifetime, which is absolutely exciting. And so I really encourage you to get on board with Dr. Sandal Ruitt's vision. Um, even make a trip over to Nepal, have a look what they're doing. Um, why not? It's a wonderful way to support uh, the human race in improving the quality of life, helping people to live that 100 not out lifestyle wherever they are in the world as Dr. Sandal Ruitt is doing. All right. Thanks again for your support of the podcast. Really appreciate your support and we can't wait to have you on next week's edition. Until next week, continue to make the rest of your life the best of your life. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.